Amen. We're in Philippians. We're going to close the book of Philippians this morning, Lord willing. And um, that was what I was going to do last week. And then I was going to recap the entire book this week, but decided not to recap the entire book. Preached a different message last week. Conclude Philippians this week. So we start with an introduction, verses 12 and 13, that we've already spoken about. Paul says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That's a very familiar verse, and it's used all the time, as you know, to, to prove all sorts of things. Uh, athlete's favorite verse, right? They score a touchdown. That's the verse they'll use. Uh, never mind the Christian defensive back that didn't tackle him, you know, so, and that's not the way to use the verse, of course, it's, it's a, a tied to verse 12, you know, I know how to be abased, I know how to abound, everywhere and in all things I've learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, I know that as he gives that list, there's a, there's a part of that list that we would like, abounding, that would be great, being full, you know, But uh, he's learned in whatever state he is in to be content. And so that's the situation that we have here. And um, he tells us that down uh, later about being content, of course. So we pick up now uh, in um, verse 14. Let's pick up there. New material. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have learned, I'm sorry, indeed I have all and abound and am full, having received from Epaphrodites the things sent from you a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And you would think that would be the end, but it goes a little bit further. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, as we see, we, verse 11, he tells us he's learned whatever state he is in to be content. Verse 12 tells us more about the state that he's content in and willing to be content in and that he has learned to be content in. And that doesn't mean he's learned perfectly, but he's learning and has learned and is learning to be content, even in those difficult circumstances. And then he turns from those exhortations to thankfulness. Verse 14, thankfulness. He thanks them. You know, I I find it somewhat puzzling that many commentators don't understand the thankfulness aspect of this. He certainly is thankful for what they've done, and he's not being uh, some kind of um, a martyr or such, saying, I have all that I need. You don't need to support me anymore. I'm content. I'm full. I have what I need. That's something you don't hear a lot from televangelists, right? 
You know, you don't hear about that, but that's what the Apostle Paul says, and uh, because it was true. And they had, had, they had actually, out of their poverty, given to help him. Out of their poverty. And he says, you know what? God's going to supply your needs because of what you have done. And that's something for us to learn, that uh, God, you know, we don't uh, give so that we can get. That's not what we do. But God's not going to be a debtor to any man. And so we should give what we can. And uh, the widow that came into the temple, what did she give? Two mites. And you know, as well as I do, that uh, as she gave those two mites, while other people were parading themselves and giving great gifts and giving a lot of money, she gave two mites, which really amounts to about two pennies. Christ blessed her because he said she gave everything she had. The Lord doesn't need our money, but he's pleased to use our money. We've got to talk about money today because that's what the text talks about. And those of you that come all the time know we don't talk about money a lot here. And the Lord's been good to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Uh, we run a balance that uh, is in the black. And uh, that's because we're frugal. That's because people give. And so we're thankful for that. But uh, we're going to be talking about money. We're going to be talking about missionary giving also. So first of all, he gives them thanks for their support. Paul learned to be full. He learned to be hungry. He learned to abound. He learned to suffer need. But he sincerely thanks them for their care for him, which was through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's some history background here, but whenever we talk about the life of Paul, um, you know, we, we know the Bible is absolutely inspired, but uh, it's kind of difficult to put his life in order because it's kind of scattered throughout. And so it becomes kind of hard for those that want to have a, a rigid timeline. It can be rather frustrating, but that's okay because uh, what we're talking about here can be found in Acts chapter 16 through 18. You don't need to turn there here. But the Philippian church was established. The Macedonian vision came. The church was established. Paul then stayed in Philippi for a time and then left and went to minister in Thessalonica. That would be the most logical place for this thankfulness to occur. For even in Thessalonica, you sent an aid once and again. Okay. Different translations translate this differently. The reason they do translate it differently is because it's an idiom. An idiom, as you know, is something that uh, wouldn't make absolute sense if you translated it literally. It has a meaning behind it. Uh, just like we say, well, you know, this has happened time and time again. Okay, that, that's an idiom, right? And so that's what we're talking about here. And um, the New King James and the ESV go once and again when it's talking about this aid that you've given in verse 16. And there's other ways it can be translated. The New American Standard says, Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Uh, certainly not exactly what it says, but it does do the idiom well, you know. And then the, the NET version uh, says, On more than one occasion, you sent something for my need. Again, it gives us the good idea there uh, because uh, literally it would be once and twice. And so we'd think, no, two times. But no, it doesn't necessarily mean two times. It means that he did receive gifts from them 
and probably not only the gifts from Thessalonica, but some ongoing support because Epaphroditus came to him later while he was in prison and brought gifts. So we know that they were very much concerned with the Apostle Paul and very much um, serving him as he served the Lord. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is where we get a little bit of background. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the, the context in verses or chapters 8 and 9 is Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to generously give to a missionary need. And the missionary need wasn't his own need. The need that he wanted them to give towards were the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering greatly. Okay? And some of the best scriptural admonitions on giving is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. I preached a series before on that, six messages on that, on the, the grace of Christian giving. I'm not going to go over that today, but you can find it there on the internet if you'd like. He's raising money for the persecuted saints in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been in the Revelation series on, on Sunday night, and we'll be resuming that again by God's grace uh, come October, um, we've just finished talking about the mark of the beast. And of course, that is famous, well-known, everybody in our society just about, maybe not everybody, okay, 90% of the people in our society know about the mark of the beast. And um, it's usually portrayed as a computer chip that you put in your hand or something like that. Of course, um, I remember growing up, it was um, being, being just amazed at a fellow that came in the 70s and said, someday you're going to go to the store and you're not going to pay with money. You're not even going to write a check. You're going to actually have this card that you carry, stick it in, and they'll take it right out of your bank. I said, I don't want that. You know, I don't want to be doing that. You know, well, that's exactly what has happened, hasn't it? You know, and and the mark of the beast is not a computer chip. It's not an ATM card. It's it's not those things. Actually, you even heard it this morning uh, as Daniel read the scriptures. He talked about the mark of God that was on the people of God, and the the book of Revelation talks a lot more about the mark of God than it does the mark of the beast. But those first century Christians and second century Christians, they knew what the mark of the beast was all about because they lived it. you know. And still there are Christians today that are living it. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Steve? It hasn't happened yet. No, it's happened and it's still happening and will continue to happen. The Jerusalem saints had lost their jobs because they were Christians. If they had a business, they lost their business. And they were not able to buy or sell. As Christians, they were persecuted. And throughout the empire, at various times that would happen, um, Aquila and Priscilla were driven from Rome and, and lost everything that they had and met up with the Apostle Paul in Corinth. And so you got these kind of things going on. In, in the medieval ages, they were called guilds. And uh, guilds are kind of Kind of like unions, not exactly. But you had to be part of the guild to be part of the situation. If you wanted to be part of what we would call the guild, or they actually weren't called that. They were called collegiums in that particular day. If you wanted to be part of the collegium, there were other things you did too. 
You're a good citizen of your community. Uh, you worshipped the empire. You worshipped the gods of the empire. And if you refused to do so, like the Christians did, many times they would be persecuted, driven even from their homes, or sometimes, of course, they would lose their businesses, they would lose their jobs. And that, I believe, is really what the mark of the beast has to do more than anything else. It's bowing to other things. It's bowing to government, if government forces you to bow that way. It's bowing to compromise and all those sorts of things. And of course, Christians can't do that. Deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Can't do that. So this has been going on. It's not something that's going to happen someday, as we see in movies or in some of contemporary, um, co- contemporary preaching that way. Uh, so, and anyway, you know, they lived what we as Americans, and we're pretty prosperous to tell you the truth. They lived, and many Christians still today are living in the very thing that Americans think will happen someday. You know, But like I said, Revelation talks more about the mark of God on his people than it does the mark of the beast. But getting back to, the, to really our situation at hand here, um, here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul exhorts them to raise a generous offering uh, for these persecuted saints in Jerusalem. In Corinth at this particular time, they weren't being persecuted. And that's what we find throughout the scriptures usually in this New Testament age in uh, the first century, uh, they were sometimes being persecuted, sometimes not being persecuted. It depended on where you lived, at what particular time, and who was the, uh, who was the, you know, the proconsul, for instance, of that particular province. And so there'd be persecution, but it wouldn't be universal persecution. But then it would become that later. And so anyway, this is what's happening. He's raising money for the saints in Jerusalem Many of them had sold their homes and given it to help, and now they were really in trouble. They'd lost their jobs and such like that. So, Corinthians, give to this need. They weren't given. So he exhorts them to give, asks them to give, tells them to give, instructs them to give. You know? And in Corinth, Paul refused to be supported by the Corinthians. Now that's kind of interesting. He says, I robbed other churches to minister to you. And that's what it says. Let's see, the verse in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. He says, um, let's go back to verse 7. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one, for what I lacked came from the brethren who came from, guess what? Macedonia. That's where Philippi was. Who came from Macedonia and they supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, And so I will keep myself. As the truth in Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows. But what I do, 
I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in this things of which we boast. And then he just goes on. But what he's talking about is something that was happening back in that day. The philosophers loved to spout their philosophies. As they spouted their philosophies, they would raise money and be given gifts and, and such like that. And Paul didn't want to be accused of being that kind of a guy. Here's another guy coming, spouting his philosophies to us, you know, and he's just doing it to enrich himself. And Paul knew the gospel is not for sale, you know. I'm, I'm going to do what I need to do to be able to preach to you. And if it means working with Aquila and Priscilla to make tents, I'll make tents with Aquila and Priscilla and we'll sell our goods and support ourselves that way. If it means taking money from other churches, including the Philippians, then that's what we'll do too. And that will mean we don't have to make as many tents and we can spend more time in gospel ministry. That's great too. So, but he wouldn't take it from the Corinthians because of their attitude, I'm sorry to say, and also because of the opponents who are going to accuse him of being greedy of money. But, you know, in 2 Corinthians, he also talks about the fact that they should have supported him. They should have. And that's what chapters 8 and 9 talk about. And without going there, just to highlight a little bit, he gives some reasons. So the soldier doesn't go into battle without pay. A farmer isn't denied eating the crops that he grows. Even a donkey is allowed to eat the grain as it treads out the mill. So he's kind of rebuking them. You know, this was a church that had a lot of problems. We preached through 1 Corinthians, and uh, 2 Corinthians, things were better by then, six months later. But in 1 Corinthians, he actually lays out at least 20 problems that church had. At least 20 major problems that were causing them disruption and discord. So Paul wouldn't let them support him. Now, let's bring this up to date. Let's bring this up to our own time. I think we can be very, very thankful for the modern missionary movement. Uh, guys like Kerry, Judson, guys like that, that were at the very beginning of, of the missionary movement as we know it today. I think the missionary movement has done well overall. It's had its problems. Sometimes um, uh, we as Americans and, and the English people have done the same thing too, have gone into foreign lands and tried to turn people into Americans or Englishmen. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to preach the gospel. We're supposed to preach the gospel, bring it into every culture. Okay, And so it's not our job to turn them into Americans. It's our job to preach the gospel. And then God will work in that culture. And hopefully, I think the very best way to do missions is for the missionary to, to work in that culture and raise up ministers from that culture and churches be established in that culture, and now you have something that's self-perpetuating and continues on. And uh, that's exactly what Carey was doing, by the way. William Carey became, as he puts it, I'm trying to be pejorative here, but William Carey says, I became a Chinaman so that I could reach the Chinese. And you know what? A form of his mission is still going today in China in spite of communist persecution and everything else. He was training the Chinese after seven years of barren ministry. 
His own translator wasn't even a Christian. But he was learning Chinese. He was working, doing what he could. After seven years of barren ministry, uh, God began to send fruit. So, you know, and there were people holding the ropes back in the States and back in England to support that ministry. You know, as we talk about missions, our church is a, is a, a missions church. We've believed in planting churches and we've planted churches. And, and God's been good to us there. Some have done better than others, but that's up to God too, isn't it? You know? And so we've done that. We've helped other churches that were struggling churches. And if you were a businessman, you'd look at the situation and say, well, why are you doing that? That's not helping you. Why don't you do the things that you can do and take that money and, and uh, make things more beautiful here? Get, you know. Well, we believe in giving. The church believes in giving. And our church people ought to believe in giving too. And of course, ministers should be paid. When they need pay, they should be paid. Uh, a minister who's only in it for the money, well, he's a fool, right? Minister that's only in it for the money is a fool because there's not that much money involved. <laughs> okay. But in all honesty, that, that was a joke. <laughs> a minister that's in it for the money is a hireling. Okay, and that's a bad thing. That's a very bad thing. So why is a minister paid? It's very simple. He's paid so he can have time. You're really paying for time. Time for study, time for prayer, time for counseling, time for you. Time for evangelism, time for these. That's, that's why a minister is paid. It's very simple. If he has to work, and many times beginning ministers have to work. They have to. And what's going to happen? Well, it's going to be difficult for them. It's going to be difficult for their families. It's going to be difficult, but they'll struggle and they'll make it through by God's grace, you know. And hopefully the church will grow and the church will take care of them. I am concerned about ministers that just leave and go to other places for a higher salary. To me, that's concerning. Doesn't mean a minister should never leave. Doesn't mean that, okay? That doesn't mean that at all. But if it's just for a promotion, so to speak, okay, it should be God that moves. It should be God is the one that plants, and God is the one that moves. So, you know, it's not God's design for every church to have the same minister or ministers for years on end. Sometimes guys are only there for a short period of time, and they move on. And sometimes they just kind of stick around and won't leave. <laughs> you know, so there you go. So anyway, the Bible tells us the minister is worthy of his hire. In fact, um, the Bible goes so far in 1 Timothy 5.17 to say that the minister is worthy of double honor. And the Greek there is double honorarium. And when you flesh it all out, and I've got a sermon that's very popular in sermon audio, I downloaded over a thousand times. That's called um, uh, the minister's salary, and I hope it's been downloaded in some cases for for men, for deacons and and such like that to listen to it, so they can get an idea of, of how they should support their pastors. I hope that's the case. Um, double honor, double honorarium. 
is what it amounts to. You take it in its most literal sense, and you say the minister is worthy of twice the salary of the average person in the congregation. Now, most good gospel ministers wouldn't take a double salary. We're talking about what's, what he's worth and what the value is, you know. But that's where we really see problems today. We see problems on both ends. We see problems with um, churches. Hopefully, if they're not able to, to support a man, then that's, that's up to God, too. But if they can and they don't, that's wrong, you know. And um, there's also a limitation. If the minister is worthy of double honor, should he be treated like the CEO of a corporation and get 10 times the amount of the average worker or 100 times the amount of an average worker? Should he be made a millionaire and just say, well, I'm a millionaire. You can be a millionaire too if you'll just give to my ministry then God will bless you and make you a millionaire. I mean, come on, people. These are ridiculous things and just cause the world to laugh at Christianity. And, uh, you know, they're already going to think the gospel is foolishness. But what if we act like fools? You know, there you go. Well, anyway, as we continue down here, concluding the book, um, he says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. There's a very, very positive reason for giving. I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul knew something that we need to know. As we give our gifts to the Lord, we're in partnership here. Churches were established. God's work was being done. They were partners with Paul in the ministry. Just flip back to chapter 1 of Philippians and he notes it a couple of times by the very word that he uses, Philippians 1.5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Note that word fellowship. There's that koinonia, there's the, that togetherness. Verse number 7, just as it's right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, as much as both in my chains, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. They couldn't go to these other places. But Paul did. And they made it possible for Paul to go. And so they were partakers. There was fruit that was abounding to their account. And of course, we know so many things we could say about that. Then he goes on. Verse 18, indeed, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Both those things are well-pleasing to God. The sweet-smelling aroma, and that pictures us back to the Old Testament, where they'd have the burnt offering, for instance, or even some of the other grain offerings and such like that that they would do. And they'd put out a, a sweet aroma that way. Burning the incense would be like that too. And so that's what the New Testament Christian giving is like. A sweet smelling aroma that God is pleased with. An acceptable sacrifice that God is well pleased with. And that should take you back to Romans chapter 12. 
when you think about that one. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. So, and Peter talks about the same thing too. Peter talks about Christians as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, we're getting towards the end here. Verse 19, a very, very familiar passage. But the reason I spent so much time talking about the background, the reason I spent so much time talking about the offering, the reason I spent so much time talking about the support is so we understand what verse 19 is all about. Because it's, again, taken out of context. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It's a promise. God is no man's debtor. But we need to understand the conditions. The scripture can be misused. It's our needs that will be supplied, not our wants. And you know what? Your needs might be relatively meager. Paul's were at times. Relatively meager and difficult, you know. Paul learned how to go without and still be content. Can we go without all the things that our neighbors have? Go without all the things that uh, are really offered to us in the world and still be content? Well, that we're supposed to be able to. God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. They were generous, and God was not going to be a debtor, you know. So this whole idea, though, of seed faith is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. It's taking a truth and just throwing it to the wind. Partnership in the gospel is a truth. But seed faith, you give $100, God will give you 1000 that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> you give $10,000, God will give you 100000 Who wouldn't go for that? You know? I mean, that's, that's a deal. You know? It's also not a realistic deal. It's not the way that God works. We don't give so that we can get. We give so that Jesus Christ can be glorified and his work can continue. The generous soul, those that give liberally to God, find that God does meet their needs. And he often gives them an abundance. I get to see that actually in action so many times, you know. Now, I don't know what the people in the church give. I purposely don't know. I don't want to know, you know. That's, that's not uh, really up to me to know. We've got people that count the money. And, and of course, you will get a, a statement at the end of the year. But, you know, I, I don't want to know because I don't want to have my judgment uh, colored in, in so many ways. That's just me personally. I'm not saying that it has to be that way. Well, that's the way that I am, and that's the way that I think. And so we don't talk about that, you know, even in our elder meetings. We won't talk except in generalities about how the giving is going, you know. But I've seen it work out. I've seen people that really just don't have very much. But I know they give. You know why I know they give? Because some people give through the mail. So here it comes, you know, and you see the name. Don't, I don't open them up usually. I don't look at them. To see, I so, said, you know, I'm, I said, I think that person doesn't have very much money, but they gave. You know, that's a blessing. 
And that's what we do. We give out of even our poverty. But we should give, you know. And, and God gets the glory as we do that. And it's by according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So if it was a matter that you give a hundred to get a thousand, well, that'd be better than the stock market. Of course, right now, just about everything's better than the stock market. But, you know, at any rate, that's not what we do. You know, it's according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God's resources are more than adequate to meet your needs. Let me just give an illustration. United States printing money at ridiculous rates. Surprise, we have inflation. Who would have thought such a thing? You know, I mean, it doesn't take an economist to understand what's happening. We just had an Inflation Reduction Act that's supposed to trim $300 billion from, from uh, the deficit in 10 years. A week later, what happens? We have a student, forgive, student loan forgiveness program. That's supposed to cost $300 billion over 10 years, although the most economists, be they left or right, say, well, it's really going to be about $500 billion because of some other provisions in there. Okay. Now, why do I say all of that? I say all that not for political reasons, really, although... I, I've probably colored your idea of my political beliefs by saying that. But I use it as an illustration because nations, no matter how prosperous they are, do not have unlimited resources. Believe it or not, there is an economic school right now that says you can print all the money you want to. You just create it. You create wealth by doing that. You know, Printing more money will create wealth. Well, you do that long enough and you'll have an economy like Zimbabwe's where your money's not worth a thing, you know. No nation has unlimited resources, but you know who does? Ah, you know who does. God has unlimited resources. And he can take care of you. And he can meet your needs. And if times get tough, and we haven't really lived through tough times, not really, you know, compared to what others have done, uh, we live pretty much like kings, to tell you the truth. You know, we've, we've done well. But there have been individuals that have had really hard times. But I've watched individuals have really hard times and seen God work and meet their needs and bring them through. And God can do that for you. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And believe me, my friend, there, are, there is nothing on the earth that compares to the riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Well, this passage is intended to encourage the Philippian believers and to encourage all the saints in all the ages, in all the places, that God can and does provide all that is needed for our true contentment as long as we're willing to be content. Ah, there you go. There, there's, there's the rub right there, right? As long as we're willing to be content. So, I just exhort you this. It's a freebie exhortation. Do what you do. Work hard. 
Be the very best you can be at, at whatever it is that you're doing. And then trust God. Trust God for the results and for him to meet your needs. And sometimes people need some help. So you know what? We give them some help. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what a church does. We've done it, and we'll do it by God's grace. And that is another way that needs are met, is by the generosity of the people of God for others. The doxology is found in verse 20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul likes to do this. He likes to end the book and then say a few more things. That's what he does here. That's a great benediction right there. But he then says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. You know, we saw earlier that there was some friction in this church. Yodius and Sententi weren't getting along so well. And there was potential for factions to begin to develop and for people to start taking sides. But Paul doesn't take sides. He didn't take sides as he talked about how to, to solve that problem. He said, let them be of the same mind in the Lord. Okay, that was how that problem would be solved. And then he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Not, not, just, not just those that, that um, stand out. There's some saints in Christ Jesus that kind of hang back a little bit and, and stay in the background, you know. But they're saints. They're saints in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless them. And may we minister to them and may we minister to each other. I really believe, you know, uh, we'll see um, some surprising things uh, at the end of time when, we, when things are, are revealed and people that uh, we thought maybe were quite simple and, uh, and not really with the program that well, um, prayer warriors, you know, and uh, helping people behind the scenes in ways that we never knew, you know. And so that's what we do. We, we should love all of God's people. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. So he had some people with him, of course, and we could talk about who they were. Uh, Luke would have been one of them and, and some others too. Um, all the saints greet you. But I like this. Especially those of Caesar's household. Doesn't tell us who they are. Doesn't want to jeopardize them. Get them in trouble. But he's in prison. And there are some in Caesar's household that actually have come to faith. Now, if you're, you're part of the Roman government and you come to faith, you could be in some serious trouble. You could be in some very serious trouble because the next thing you find is your job's in jeopardy and you could be persecuted. All kinds of things could happen. So he doesn't give them away with their names, but, but who would they be? Well, they would be like uh, the soldiers that guarded him. They'd be like the slaves that worked in the royal compound. They'd be like anyone that's connected to the government in some way or another, you know. The gospel is powerful. It's so powerful, it can penetrate anywhere, even in the courts of the most powerful man on earth in his time. Man thinks he's powerful, but every man's going to die. Yeah. God alone is actually all-powerful. So he ends the epistle. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
Amen. It opened with Jesus Christ the Lord, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. It ends with Jesus Christ. And that's the way it should be. Every gospel message should be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but let me ask you now, individually, each one of you that are here. Jesus Christ is Lord, but do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord? The Bible tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But do you bow the knee today and confess him as Lord? Do you know him in saving faith? Do you believe on the only begotten Son of God? Are you looking to Him alone to meet all of your needs, both in this world and especially in the world to come? The invitation is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's never refused a sinner who's come to Him in simple believing faith. He has accepted every single sinner, even a thief on the cross, even those who once were proud and arrogant and refused to bow, even those that said, I will never bow. But then they did. And the Lord accepts them. We're going to witness a baptism in a few moments. Baptism is not salvation. We've been very clear about that. Been very clear with everybody that's ever been baptized here and, and very clear with Crystal. Baptism is not salvation, but you know what it is? It's your public profession of faith that you are a Christian. And in some cultures, that's really understood. You can say, I believe in Jesus. Some Muslim cultures and places like that, they won't like that too much. You get baptized, and now you're in trouble. Because baptism shows a lot of things. It shows you're in Christ. But it also shows that you're renouncing your former way of life. And now you're following him. That's what it's all about. Buried in the water. Just like Christ was buried in the grave. Risen to walk in newness of life. And that's what we're going to see. It's a public profession. Crystal gave her testimony and that was great. All of you that have ever joined this church have given your testimony. And we've always been blessed by that. But the real testimony is the one you're going to see pictured as we go into the waters of baptism just a few moments. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for even the things that we're sometimes uncomfortable talking about. You know, we don't talk about money a lot here in the church. We probably don't talk about it as much as, well, we only talk about it when really it comes up in our verse-by-verse expositions. But Lord, you've always met our needs, and we're glad for that. And certainly there are other churches and pseudo-churches that are far more prosperous than we are. But Lord, I pray they wouldn't be far more blessed. I pray they wouldn't be far more faithful to you. I pray that we would be counted amongst the faithful ones. Lord, we're not perfect, but Jesus Christ is. And we look to him and him alone. Would you bless now every single heart here today? Would you use each the word of God to penetrate for your glory and for the honor of the Son? We thank you for this grand opportunity 
of a baptism. It's a wonderful thing to see. And Lord, we would just pray that we would be stunned by it in the right way and that we'd remember our own baptisms and that Jesus Christ would be Lord of glory in our hearts too. We thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. May Jesus Christ be praised. In his name we pray, amen.